Good morning. Again, my name is Rich Starnes, my last name. Um, I'm one of the uh, leaders here at Chorus. If you are here for the first time, or maybe the second time this morning, we are crazy glad you're here. Um, thank you so much. And hey, if I've seen you every week for like the last three years, I'm crazy glad you're here today too. Um, um, <laughs> so, um, so get, uh, we're, we're, we're taking another uh, break from our Jonah series today. Um, basically, anytime you see me up here, we're taking a break from our Jonah series. Um, but um, but uh, we, we, we've, we, we're doing a series um, about uh, what, the, what we're calling our old school series, or back to the basics, or, or looking at the things that, that define us as a church, um, what we're calling our distinctives, the things that make um, Karis, Karis. And the last time I was now, if you weren't here the last time, I'm going to recover so, cover it all, so it's okay. But the last time I was here up here talking about our distinctives, we talked about the distinctive of being word-driven. And one of the things I talked about in that it w- was this idea, this sense of awe. Um, that, and I think the, the, the example I gave was, was being out on a cruise ship in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and you go out and you look out, and like there's no land anymore, and there's just water, and you realize how incredibly small you are, how incredibly great uh, and big um, that God is, and you're like, wow, um, a sense of awe that a dictionary calls awe the, an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, fear, etc., um, produced by that which is grand, sublime, extremely powerful, or the like. Um, awe, awe, overwhelming feeling of reverence and admiration. Our family um, last summer went out to a vacation in Smoky Mountains, Gatlinburg, area. anybody been out there? A uh, few people. Uh, just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous area. Um, we got, we had a cabin, and it was just big. It was Mel- Melody's uh, parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and so all of her um, sisters and some of the ne- nephews and nieces were there, and and uh, so um, with that many people, we were able to get like this nice big cabin, and had one had this big, all, you know, all wood. You just feel kind of manly being there, and then it had this big um, wraparound deck. Uh, like a two-level deck, um, and the, like when we first got there, went out on the deck, went out in the back, and just looked, and wow, I mean that's that is, you had this gorgeous view. It's all these hills rolling on and on for miles. There's all tree covered, and just all of this, uh, and then in, and then in the ba- you know in the back, uh, there's more beyond it, but in the back of what you could see, just this big mountain. Um, glorious, rising up, like it was prevailing over all of this stuff before it, and it just literally took my breath away. It was just awesome, um, and I, I, I spent a lot of time that week just out of that deck, just looking, just, just looking at the scene. Um, one day, it would be sunny and clear, and you could see the peak of that mountain standing boldly against, uh, against deep blue sky, and just looking majestic. And then the next day, it was overcast and rainy, and there'd be these pockets of fog and mist settled in various crooks and valleys um, leading up to the mountain, that kind of smoke on the mountain effect, wisps coming off the mountain. And it just, it literally never failed to invoke awe in me, Um, a recognition of just how fortunate I was to be there in the presence of this. Um, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't odd just because it was beautiful. It wasn't odd just because it was neat to look at. Um, it wasn't even odd because this, you know, this object projected power and, and, and beauty. It was, it was the reverence I felt because I recognized God 
our God, um, he had created it through his command, um, through his control, and through the, na- uh, the power of the natural processes that he started and he sustained. Um, he made that mountain and every hill and every tree and every leaf um, in this thing, in it, all around him. And all that was there to just inspire a wow. So that week, I'd, I'd, I'd go out there to pray, go out there to read scripture. One night, I even took my, I went, I took my, gar, my guitar out there, and I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to sing a song to God, because this, um, this is just amazing. Um, I, I just wanted to thank him for, for allowing me to be present in this place um, that, just, that just reflected his glory. Passage we read, and we're going to explore days about this, about what God has created to reveal the greatness of who he is. Um, and so we, we, we reach our second distinctive. Last time we, we talked about this, we talked about being word-driven, how the word of God is central um, to, to who we are. Um, today, we talk about the distinctive for our church that we, we're talking about today is that we are God-centered. We are God-centered. Um, I think we have a do we have a paragraph that talks about that? We sure do. Okay, this is the wordy version um, of that, that defines what we mean when, at Cars when we say that we are God-centered. We have a passion for God's glory that shapes all teaching and practice. Cars will be a place where God is proclaimed in all his glory with great joy. This will affect the teaching and the practice, the message and the methods of Cars, and will therefore be God-centered as opposed to man-centered. We exist as a people to display God's glory in Christ. All right, so that's, that's wordy. It's dense. Um, shorter answer, we exist as a church for the glory of God. We exist as a church for the glory of God. Okay, so what does that mean? What is the glory of God? We talk about it a lot. We talk about to, to God be the glory. We sing about it a lot. We, it's, it's one of those phrases we use, and sometimes you can come away going, to God be the glory, I'm not really sure what that means. Um, and I tell you, even though verse after verse after verse of the Bible talks about the glory of God, talks about giving him glory, talks about him revealing his glory, um, we don't actually have a verse that says the glory of God is blank. Uh, is Here's a definition. We don't actually, I, at least if you have found one, please feel free to tell me after we're done. I've not found a verse that says it literally that clearly. Um, so what we can do for the next, you know, 90 minutes, two hours or so, is just go through a whole bunch of Bible passages about God's glory and say, and then cobble together a, 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 a definition. Or we can look to somebody who's already done that and steal his. So I'm going to do that because you don't want to keep you here for hours. So um, pa- uh, pastor, preacher, writer, theologian John Piper offers up This definition of the glory of God, which I think is pretty darn good. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. There's a lot of words in there that we should probably define. So first of all, infinite, infinite, uncountable, never-ending. There's nothing more that, that is or could be than this beauty that we see revealed in Christ. It is infinite, is beyond our ability to grasp how much it is. 
Um, beauty, it is, a, it is pleasurable to behold. It is, when you see beauty, it is something that you want to dwell on, to fixate on, um, to examine, to, 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 you know, the word you think behold is behold the beauty. You, you, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't typically want to behold um, trash or ugly things. You, you behold things that are beauty, beautiful, pleasurable to behold. Greatness, greatness, big. <laughs> Enormity, supremacy, the biggest and the best um, of what there can be. Um, manifold mean, is just is, is a fancier word for many, um, in, 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 uncountable, innumerable. Uh, and then finally, perfections. He is in every way perfect. So in essence, God's glory is the biggest, the best, most wonderful thing that there can be. The glory of God is the biggest, best, most wonderful thing that there could be. And the first part of this psalm that we read today, it talks about how everything, and it doesn't explicitly mention everything, but we're going to see that it talks about how everything, all of creation exists to give glory to God. Let's look. Verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, this is a psalm uh, or a, is a worship song or prayer written um, by King David. David was king. Um, he, he wrote many of the psalms. Um, he, he was a lifelong musician. Um, and the Bible tells us he's a man's after God's own heart. So he writes lots of songs um, about, uh, about God. And he starts as talking basically, basically as big and as glorious as we can actually fathom. He doesn't start with a blade of grass or a pebble or a minnow, but he starts with the heavens. When you hear heavens, hear sky, and then what goes beyond the sky, outer space, the planets, the stars, the galaxy, the entire universe is what he's talking. Everything beyond us, the stuff that you look at, like when, you, when you're out in the country and you go out at night and you look up and you're like, wow, I've literally never seen the stars like this before. And you just, you just, what you see is, is bigness. You just see stretching on and on and on. Maybe some of you have been fortunate to live out in places like, uh, or, or visit places like, out in like the, the, the west where Wyoming and Montana or west, west Texas where you look at, where the sky just literally seems to be the only thing that's there. It's just all around you, everywhere. Um, that's, that's what, what David's trying to invoke here, just trying to look, go to, I want to tell you what declares the glory of God, the biggest, the biggest thing that you can fathom. Um, all of it declares the glory of God. Verse 2, day to day um, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. We see that the passage of time, um, day and night, uh, actually speaks of who God is and what he's done. Time, like the heavens, is this thing created by him. It is about him, and it's something that we, can, we, we experience, but we can't truly fathom uh, all about it. Verses 4, uh, end of verse 4 through 6, talks about the sun, um, this, this big giant thing that was so necessary um, to people for life and, and, and telling time and, 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 and sustaining, um, you know, with warmth and, and, and helping plants grow and, and, and all of these things. Um, he says, in, in the sky, in them, the sevens, the sky, he has set a tent for the sun 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. You ever think of the sun? sun you, know, you look at sunrise and go, that's cool, but it's like, it's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. That means it's a very happy, you know, very happy bridegroom, okay? This is, um, this is a celebration of, 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 of wonder, of beauty, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising, it's from the end of heavens, and it's circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He looks at this vital thing, um, the sun. It's, the sun separates day from night, provides light and heat. It sustains life. It also destroys. It can, it can burn and, 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 and um, scald and, and those kind of things. David's using the biggest, distant, unreachable, untouchable things of the universe to reveal that all of creation, all of it, every piece of it exists to declare God's glory. And it's not just limited to these big things, though. Um, John Calvin um, said this. Did I put this one in there? I can't remember. Okay. Um, so this, so listen. David has particularly selected these big things for contemplation, that their splendor might lead us to contemplate all parts of the world. When a man, from beholding and contemplating the heavens, has been brought to acknowledge God, he will learn also to reflect on and to admire his wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth, not only in general, but even in the minutest plant. Um, reading that quote reminded me of a day. Um, you know, so so I, we went to the, on vacation and, and Big Mountain, all, all this all. There's one day that, that my family uh, had a picnic on the governor's gardens grounds. So we just laid out a blanket and we sat down and we, we had some lunch. And for some reason, I was just laying there. And I looked down, and I saw this tiny, um, like, caterpillar-type bug. But I say tiny, like two millimeters, maybe. I mean, just really this small. And I don't, I don't even know how I saw it. It was just so small. But I just saw it moving. And so, and I'm like, I just kind of looked at it for a second. I'm like, wow. That's, you know, again, that's really cool. And um, just watching, this, I just watched how complex it was. It moved in the way its body, its entire body seemed to move um, um, to help propel it, um, how it dealt with obstacles and things in a way, sometimes obstacles that I would kind of like put in its way to see, I wonder what's going to do now, um, um, see how it reacted to stimuli. It was, um, I mean, I'm it was so tiny. It was, it, it was, you know, it's almost infinitely tiny, yet it was so clearly amazing. I even, like, I even took out my phone and took a, like, videoed it, because I'm just, like, amazed by this tiny, tiny thing. Um, and that same awe that I experienced from mountain and all this glorious stuff, I experienced from watching this tiny, tiny little thing just have this incredibly, like, you know, this incredibly intricate life that, you know, sure, it's not going through like wild thought processes and contemplating the works of Plato and Socrates. Okay, but it's, I mean, what it was doing, it just showed that there was, it's far beyond a complexity that, that I would, that, that my mind can actually wrap its head around. That's what creation is there for, to inspire that, to inspire that wonder to inspire that awe, to look at, look at God and go, wow, God is a really, really big deal. And because we are not only a part of creation, but we, we are told that we are its crowning achievement. We, nothing else, made in the image of God. 
we too must seek to glorify God, to give him glory, the glory that he desires and the glory that is due him. Now, there are objections um, to this line of, uh, of speaking about God. First objection, what if God didn't really create everything? What if it was just natural processes and then none of this actually testifies that there's a God? As a word-driven and God-centered church, we must reject that. We must reject that there is a creation without a creator. Um, the word of God over and over and over tells us that the world was made of the world. And when he says word, the, 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 the biblical word that God uses um, um, for, for world is essentially cosmos. Um, if you might have heard the word cosmos before, that's not just talking about our earth, it's talking about everything, um, everything. Um, that's, that's what God made. Um, that's what God made. The word tells us over and over he did that, and we treasure that word. Now, we skimmed it um, here today, verses 7 through 11, but if, you're, if you have your Bible and you're in this passage, just look at, at, seven, at 7 through 11. The reason we skipped today is because this is what we talked about last time when we talked about reading, read it, being word-driven, but we look at it, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Um, the rules of the Lord are true. What God has said is true. It's ultimate. And as a church, we've already agreed that we are word-driven. We are going to focus on what God's word said. We are going to let God's word shape us. And if God's word said God created, then we are, as a, as a church and as Christians, are going to say God created. Um, and, and, and in fact, the passage that we did read tells us um, that he has made this plain, verses, verses 3 through the first half of 4. Um, there is no speech, and when, when we're talking about speech, it said for a day-to-day pours out speech. So he's talking about the testimony that nature, nature and creation gives. Um, there is no speech poured out by the day by day, there are, nor are there words poured out, the knowledge revealed from night to night, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The truth that God has created and that that glory of God is revealed through creation is everywhere. It has gone out everywhere, and it is understandable everywhere, yet it is not understood any, everywhere. Why is that? Why is it? The truth of the, that the whole creation, us included, is clear to those who will hear it, but there are people who won't hear that. Why not? Sin. Sin is what prevents us from looking at creation and seeing and glorifying God because of it. Uh, Psalm 14.1 starts this. The fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable de deeds. There is no one who does good. Not let, not, not, this is not an us versus them thing because no one who does good means all of us don't do good. It is only by the grace of God that we are able to look at his glory and see his glory and give him glory for it. Um, our sinful nature, um, the flesh we chose because we chose sin, um, rebels against the truth of God's glory that should be clear to us, but it's not because sin stains it. And because sin has stained our perception of him, our ability to see him, um, that leads us, that leads people to reject him and his creation, Romans 1. 19 through 23, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power 
and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they could see him if they wanted to. They don't want to. Um, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Again, we see just like for Psalm 14, one said, they became fools. They became fools. Now, while the how of creation, how did God do it, um, is something that can and should be explored and researched and collated differing opinions about what the text means and what science, scientific evidence shows us. Yeah, we can, we can, we can work that out. But what we cannot deny, what we, we cannot have question about is the who of creation. We can differ on the how, but we cannot differ on the who. The who of creation. God-centered church must recognize and revere our creator God because that creation, us included, reveals vital things, necessary things, ultimate things about God and his glory. So we, we, we just simply, as, as a church that, that is centered on God and, centered, and driven by his word, we, we must recognize him um, as creator. Um, cre creator creating a creation, that was not easy to say, um, that reveals his glory. Okay, so we're talking all about this. So, so we, we accept that. We accept um, creation declares his glory and that we as creation are meant to give him glory. The second objection that comes up to this, well, doesn't that make God kind of selfish? Doesn't that make God kind of an ego, like kind of on an ego trip type thing, if what he really wants is just his glory? Um, well, that's just kind of all about him. If aren't, We're not supposed to be like that, right? We're not supposed to be looking, at, looking for, out for ourselves. We're supposed to be looking for others. Um, so that's an objection. That's one of the objections raised um, to this idea that God exists and that we exist for his glory. Um, none of, but that is not true. Um, that is not true. And I've got three reasons why that's not true. Um, first, as we've, as we've talked about, when we were talking about the definition of God's glory, if God's glory is the biggest, best, most awesome, most important, most beautiful, most perfect thing that there is, um, if that is true, and we believe that to be true, and if God is the greatest and most wonderful and most perfect thing that there is, and we believe, because Scripture tells us that he is, that we believe that, um, there is nothing better that he could want. He, the, the, the most perfect could only want the thing that is most perfect. By necessity, if he wanted anything less than perfect, that would make him less than perfect. Um, the glory of God is the best thing. You can't be faulted for wanting the best thing. That, that's what makes him different um, than our imperfect selves and why our love for our own glory like, well, I want to be the center of my universe. I want to be in charge of me. I want to seek what's best for me. That's selfish because I'm sorry, and, and I, I'm on the team with you. We're imperfect. We kind of, you know, without God, we just kind of stink. Um, that's who we are. And so, to, like I said, we don't behold garbage and go, this is glorious. This is beautiful. We don't do that. We behold the beautiful things. Well, here's the thing. On the grand cosmic scale of what is perfect and what is not, we're closer to the garbage side outside of Christ than we are to the, to the perfect God side. Um, um, it is the best thing. He's not selfish for desiring the best thing. Second, 
Uh, because we believe that God is triune, that God, we talk about God, but we also recognize that God reveals himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see that throughout Scripture, that, there is, that God exists in these three different persons. By necessity, if God desires his own glory, it is not selfish, it is selfless, because it is God who wants to share it with the different people of God. God the Father desires the glory of God the Son and God the Spirit. God the Son desires the glory, God the Father, God the Spirit. God the Spirit desires the glory, God the Father, and God the Son. They want glory not for themselves, but for, but, but for the other people of himself. Um, it, you, like, sounds circularly, but it, it's clear. Because God is perfect relationship, he wants to share um, with, with the other people of himself. Um, his desire for it must necessarily be selfless because it is directed um, to the other people of the Godhead. And here's the third reason. Um, God is so selfless that in Christ, um, in Christ, we who share, um, it, those who share in his sacrifice, those who share in what Jesus Christ had done, also share in the glory that is due him. He shares his glory with us. Second Thessalonians 2.14 says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we may obtain the glory. God desires his glory so that he can share his glory with his children. How does he do that? Through the gospel. The gospel, the story about how God did create. He created this whole universe. He created everything. He created everything to not only to reflect his glory, but so that he could share his glory. He wanted people, not because he needed them, because he wanted to show them how great and loving and merciful and gracious and perfect he was and wanted them to love him so that he could love them. He, he, he created for a relationship, and we said no. And we said, I don't want a relationship where I don't get to be the God of my life. So, he, so we sin, and God said, you've chosen your way. You've chosen sin, and I'm perfect, and sin is imperfect, so we must always be separated. I am life, so separate from me is death. You get death, you get punishment, you get the choice that you've made for sin. But, but, best word in the entire Bible is but God, seeing these dead, filthy, rebellious sinners said, I love you so much, I'm going to, I'm going to fix this, so I will send my son, Jesus Christ, very, very, the essence of myself, God himself, and he's going to come to earth. He's going to come one of you, which he was one, of, he was, he was perfection. Um, he was everywhere. He was everything. And he said, I'm going to become a baby. And then he's going to grow up and he's going to live perfectly when we sin every day, a hundred different times a day in a hundred different ways in thoughts and actions in words, in lack of trust, in doubt, in, in anger, in all these ways that we sin over and over and over. He did none of that. He, his thoughts were perfect. His feelings were perfect. And his actions were perfect. And then he said, even though I am perfection, I will die the, the, the death that belongs to the imperfect, the death that belongs to sinner, the, 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 the death that God commands because of my sin. I'll take that. I'll take that for you to save you for his glory. Um, for, so, so he died to share his glory with us. So that, um, and then, so, so Jesus dies, and then he, and then on the third day, 
um, he says, and now it's finished. He, our sin was finished on our cross, but death was finished on that Easter morning when Jesus rose and conquered death and hell forever. So that we trust in him. And I said, and I, and I said that before, if we are in Christ, what that means is that we have faith and we respond and we say, I trust in what Jesus Christ has done. I trust in what you did. When we do that, we share the glory. We share the glory. He is a selfless God. His glory is the best thing. It is the best thing that he shares in relationship amongst the, 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 the people of God, and it is a thing that he selflessly shares. He doesn't have to. Scripture even says, my glory goes to no one else except me, and because it comes to me, it comes to mine. It comes to my children, my church, our church. And so we are centered on God's glory because it is the reason that this creation exists. It is the reason that people exist and is the reason that we, Chorus Church Jefferson City, exist to give God glory. Okay, so, we're, so, so we exist to give God glory. Creation exists to give God glory. How do I do that? How can I do that? Um, verses 12 through 14, the last portion of the passage that we read, gives us some, some ways. Uh, not necessarily an exhaustive list, but a pretty good list. Um, um, three ideas here. First one um, is that we pursue humility. Um, one way that we are God-centered and that we pursue the glory of God is that we pursue humility. If God is glorious, if God is worthy of glory, then my, by necessity, um, we try to take the glory away from ourselves to give him more glory. Um, verse 12, who can discern his errors? Now, this his is not talking about God. Okay, this his is about who, what, essentially read it like this. What man is able to um, discern his own errors? That's what it's saying. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Basically what this is saying about us, it is not our nature to know ourselves well enough to know all of our faults, to know all of our errors, to know all of our sins. We might know that we commit a certain sin, but we don't get that we necessarily commit that sin because our heart has, has sinful patterns and idols that we've just been reinforcing our whole life. Um, and, and so we might see one sin, and there's 10 other sins underneath. We don't know them, and, and they're like beyond us. And so we recognize that, boy, you know what? Even though I think I'm the authority on myself, and even though I truly know myself probably better than anybody, anybody on the earth that knows me better than he knows me infinitely better than I can possibly know myself. It takes humility to, to acknowledge that. It takes humility to go, I really am not the expert in me, am I? Maybe I should listen to somebody who is the expert uh, in me about that. He knows our unworthiness even better than we do on our most honest day. Even when we're kind of stripped bare and we go, yeah, I really did mess up. Man, I really do love this sin. Even on our best day, he knows our unworthiness better than that. So what do we do? We submit to that as true. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves, we don't fear his word. We don't fear his correction. And we don't fear his providence. We don't fear the things that, he, that, that happen to us in our lives. We allow him to do as he pleases with us. We chase away fear and anger and disappointment and anxiety. All those things that we typically experience when control over ourselves and what we're going to do is challenged. Whenever somebody says, I don't get to be in control of me anymore, I'm like, hold on. Yes, I do. And I'm going to fight you tooth and nail 
in every way I possibly can to make sure I get to maintain and grow. Submitting, the sense in which submitting, recognizing that God is glorious and bigger than us says, no, I don't. I'm done with that. We allow God to examine us through his spirit working in our hearts and, and this is the part that sometimes makes people uncomfortable about a church like ours, and through our church. Um, We allow other people to speak truth to us about our sin. We allow other people to, to come to us and say, brother, this is a problem. And we don't, and we don't fight and we don't say, well, I'm packing up my toys and going home. There's another church that won't do this to me, and I'll go there. We don't do that. We, we, we say, yes, because I want God to be glorified. I am willing to take, to let you speak into my life. So that, that's a thing we do as a church. We, 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 we meet together in groups we call Fight Club, um, where we do that expressly. We read, we read scripture, and we, and we talk to each other about our sin. Um, we do that in RMCs. We talk, we, 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 we do that. We, we do that here from the pulpit. We talk about we, 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 when we're talking about sin. We try really, really hard to set where to not talk about the sin out there, what the people do out there, um, the people of the world sin. A lot of churches, you can get a lot of mileage. Pastor can get a lot of amens on a Sunday morning um, from coming up and talking about how those filthy people are filthy, filthy sinners. Aren't they filthy? Lots of amens. Don't get as many amens like, look at the people in here. Aren't we filthy? <laughs> it's just, so that's, that's when we're God-centered, when we're pursuing glory of God, that's one way we do it. We, we let God kind of rip us open and show us, and show us um, the sin that's there. We don't get mad about it. We don't get mad when our brothers and sisters confront our sin. We embrace it. We run to it, not from of it. We pursue humility. Um, second thing we pursue is we pursue repentance. Verse 13, um, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Um, presumptuous sins. What do I mean by that? Presumptuous sins are those sins that are committed in arrogant disregard of divine commands. Okay, so basically every sin that's not hidden. Um, these are the, sin, the, the hidden sins like, man, I didn't even know I was doing that. Presumptuous sins are like, I know what God said, going to do it anyhow. Uh, don't care what he said, I'm going to do sin sins. We are presuming upon God. We said, eh, he'll forgive me. Uh, he loves me. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Ever heard anybody say that when they're running for their sin? Um, we presume upon God. That's, that's, so that's every sin that we know we're doing. We know we are sinning and we do it anyway. We recognize that heart, hearts that are so want their sin, recognize that hearts that so want their sin, they're willing to disregard God's word that says don't do that, um, that those can enslave us. That God, God actually talks about how those things harden our hearts, drive us away from him, make us see a world and not see his glory. So we seek to be kept from that. That's the word that's here. Keep back your servant from these sins. We seek to be kept from it. We repent. We turn, repent, just word that means we turn away. We're pursuing sin. We basically just change directions and we run from it. We flee from it. We encourage confession sin. Even on Sunday mornings, we take time in our, in our liturgy and our music to confess sin together, to, to recollect during the week the ways in which we have followed, the many, many ways in which we have fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and we fight sin together uh, in our groups. 
And most importantly, we always, always preach the gospel. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We preach it to each other. We preach it to a world that needs to. We remember that it talks here is like, then I shall be blameless and innocent, uh, and innocent of great transgression. Here's the thing. In Christ, if you trust in Christ, you are, not you will be, you are blameless and you are innocent of great transgression. We preach the gospel because these things that we aspire to are things that Jesus Christ has already done for us. Um, we are blamelessness, and he died to give us his blamelessness and his innocence, okay? If he was those things, and he was, um, and when he died, he gives them to us, then we are. Um, so we pursue repentance to simply be the people who God has already made us. We seek to live out what is true, um, testifying to the truth that was true of him, and therefore striving to live knowing that it's true of us. And that leads us to our, to our final point here. Um, the third thing we pursue is righteousness. To glorify God, we pursue righteousness. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Um, we seek righteousness revealed by God through his word, through his spirit, through his son. And it, and it actually goes in reverse order from the way that, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. We turn the... the the, the first thing we do is we turn to Jesus, our rock and redeemer, because he is righteous. He is perfectly righteous. When we trust in him, we become fully righteous. And we recognize, and we remember that, even as we, even as we commit all those sins, even as we serve our flesh, we look at Jesus, and we look at what he did, and we remember, I am in Jesus, and I am righteous. I am in Jesus, and I am righteous. I am in Jesus, and I am righteous. And we just tell that ourselves that over and over and over and over again. He has done that. It is true. If you trust in Jesus... You don't have to prove that you're righteous. You don't have to, to be righteous enough for God to accept you. He's done that. Live in that. Trust in that. Remember that. We turn to Jesus. Um, because we are righteous, and second thing, we seek to have our hearts turn to him. Um, the words that, he, that the psalmist used are, be acceptable in your sight. We give up our sins and our idols, and we let go, and our, we let our heart be shaped by him. So we let our heart be shaped by him through his word. We, we read and study, and when we gather together, we preach the word. We, we love to sing. We, we love to, we love, and we have the liturgy as we sing, and, and we love to do that, and we love to get coffee, and we love to talk to each other. But this is, this is center stage. This is what motivates us. The word of God working in our heart over and over and over again. Um, we do that as we gather in our missional communities, what we call our MCs. Um, we, we, we have a meal, we, we invest in each other's lives, but then we go here, we go to the word because we recognize it's necessary. Um, we let our hearts be shaped by his spirit. As believers, we believe that when we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, lives in us, dwells in us, leads us, and we trust that, and we let him, and we are also shaped by our church. And sometimes, as the Spirit's leading us, we are still fighting that. We're trying to veer off different ways. And the church, the body, collectively, the spirit in all of us comes and says, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. We're going to basically, we're going to put the guardrail here. We're going to put the guardrail here. We're going to move all of us working down the road. The, in, the, the purpose that we exist as a church um, is to, if we're God-centered, if we're seeking to bring people into a God-centered life and God-centered church, is to help each other, um, shape each other, to let our hearts be shaped by him. Finally, we have hearts that pursue him. Um, then speak and act in ways that honor him. These words, let the words of my mouth um, be, um, um, 
be acceptable to him. We worship him. We speak scripture. We speak words of encouragement to each other. Um, we speak words of love to each other. Never been in a church that, where people tell each other they love each other more than, more than here, ever. Like, I, I'll be honest, don't actually remember anybody saying that to me in most of the churches I've been in my life. Um, here, you, you hear it a lot. Um, we mean it. We, we speak those words because, they're in, because we do feel that way, because we're told to, to, told to pursue that. We're told to feel that way. Um, we share Christ and his goodness with words about him to lost people and to actions that speak to our culture. We love our city, and so we go and serve our city. We love the people in our city, so we tell them about the, this God that loves them. Um, to shorten that all up, we live out the righteousness that Christ has already given us um, by pursuing Christ-likeness. Because he has lived and died for us, we live and die in him. Um, this is who we are. This is what we exist for. This is what we live for as Christians and as a church to pursue um, the glory of God, to give God glory. I'm going to finish by stealing from John Piper again. I'm absolutely one of the best preachers uh, I know on, on this idea of the glory of God. kind of opened my eyes when I started reading and hearing him to this idea of the glory of God. Um, let this, this quote be the ultimate desire of our hearts and of our God-centered church. Do you see it and do you love it? You were made for this. Something deep in your soul is saying to you, I was made for this, to behold the glory of God and to become a glorious, God-reflecting person. Receive the Lord Jesus and you will become a child of God. And if you become a child of God, you will see him and love him and grow up all the way up to be like him, unspeakably glorious. Let's pray. Father, you are so glorious, Lord. And too often our hearts are dimmed. 